tending to do is to pick uh, a, an Old Testament book, a shorter book, and in recent times it was Habakkuk and Malachi, and uh, one you may not have heard much about with looking at this time, the book of Zephaniah, and you might think, well, what's that got to do with sending Darrell off? And uh, one of the things that I reflected about it is that there is an urgency to the task. Not only Narelle's task, but the task for all of us, either to share the good news that we have, because there is a day coming, referred to in this little book 20 times as the day of the Lord. And it is a day which will be shocking to the world. Because it is a day, as David's alluded to, both in the communion talk and, and in his prayer, it is a day of the wrath of God. Now, that's a dirty word to the world today. They want to emphasize the love of God and then accuse God if he doesn't seem loving enough on their terms. But it's a significant day that is looming fast. There is a limit and a time to the calendar of this earth of God's plan, redemptive plan for this earth, and that day is approaching. We either are his, or we're his enemies. And we're going to look at that briefly. In an article in uh, Psychology Today, they asked the question, do you want the good news or the bad news? And by the way, Zephaniah has a fair share of the bad news, warning there is, a, there is judgment and destruction coming. We're going to look from verses 1 to 3, and basically an introduction and an overview to the book, so even if you don't hear the rest of the series, you'll get some idea of what the urgent message of this book is about. But the article in Psychology Today back in 2014 by Art Markham says, do you want the good news or the bad news? And he says, many situations in life involved a double-edged sword that carries good news and bad news. A study revealed that most people prefer to hear bad news before good news. Just get something annoying off my screen there. In one study, people who got bad news first ended up in a better mood. Those who got good news first weren't as likely to change their behaviour. Most people, 78%, wanted to hear the bad news first, followed by the good news because they believed they would feel better if they got the bad news out of the way and ended on a good note. Overall, we all like to get improving sequences of news, that's bad news first, because the last thing you hear affects your mood. However, he suggests it turns out that being a little unsettled can be motivating. So if you are motivated to act on the bad feedback by making changes in your behaviour, it is better to focus on what is wrong and to hear it last. Well, somebody forgot to tell Zephaniah that. Because he starts by giving us the bad news 
and then tells us the good news. But he does point to it along the way as well. The book starts here with just three short verses. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the seas and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And what we start with is just two things that we're going to look at, although there's lots of pieces that you'll see along the way. But the first is the loyal prophet. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, and we get the list of the, uh, the kings that precede him that he, he descended from. This phrase, the word of the Lord, was also used by Hosea, Joel, and Micah. And it reveals both the source of the message and the messenger. The messenger is human. But don't forget, miss this, the message bears God's authority. So his name is Zephaniah. And there's uh, various... uh, definitions of what the name means the most common is Yahweh hides or God hides another is Yahweh's watchman or Yahweh protects or Yahweh treasured or Yahweh has treasured or hidden there's some uncertainty over the etymology of the prophet's name which scholars debute but there is a hint in chapter 2 verse 3 that we'll look at briefly later on it may point to God's protection of Zephaniah in his childhood during Manasseh's wicked reign, or it may point to God's protection of his people during the impending uh, difficulties in Zephaniah's day, to which he's pointing out. We read in 2 Kings 21 verse 6 of the days before that... uh, Manasseh did these things. He made his son pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That's the environment that Zephaniah the prophet as a child grew up in, that kind of of wickedness. Now, normally the genealogy of a prophet only references his father, But Zephaniah traces his ancestry back four generations to demonstrate his royal lineage as the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, making him uh, uh, him a distant relative of King Josiah and of the princes to whom he addressed his prophecy. Now we want to just put together some of the background so you understand a little bit of the book. And... uh, It says, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. This dates his message between the reign of Josiah 640 to 609 BC, coming under the kings of Josiah, uh, Judah there, a time of religious reforms and political turmoil, likely in the early part of his reign, and his prophecy was possibly given between 635 and 625 BC. 
What's significant is that the moral state of the southern kingdom of Israel, Israel by this time was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel, has been taken into captivity in 722 BC, and now Judah stands as the sole representative, and it's going to face judgment in 585 BC. But during this time, these kings had practiced great evils. Now, Josiah became a king at the age of eight. And for some years, he was, it was reigned by uh, some guide, guide, people that were guides and the ruling leaders of the time. But then it says this in 2 Chronicles 24, 3, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem, of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. The idol worship that these wicked kings had introduced and and encouraged. And that's one of the pieces of background that we need to come to. Judah had fallen into idolatry, neglecting their covenant with God, their relationship with God, and were facing impending judgment. And into this scene of moral and religious degeneracy came the boy king, Josiah. We read in 2 Kings 22, 1 and 2, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Judida, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkas. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, in the 18th year of uh, Josiah's reign, in 622 BC, the book of the law was discovered in the temple, which led to renewal of the Mosaic Covenant and a further series of reforms. He had already started some reforms when he dedicated his life to God, and uh, they get taken even further. And uh, he seeks to eliminate idolatry and worship, in, false worship in Judah and Jerusalem. His regime is also backed by the prophetic ministries of Jeremiah as, uh, and Zephaniah, but the prophet's call for repentance ultimately falls on deaf ears. Now, we need to understand also that the nearby nations uh, were a part of what is influencing what's going on, and Zephaniah f- focuses on neighboring nations like Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Cush, and Nineveh. Assyria was being replaced by Babylon as the power behind the Euphrates. Politically, the imminent transfer of Assyrian world power to the Babylonians weakened Nineveh's hold on Judah, bringing an element of independence to Judah for the first time in 50 years. As well, we find that his contemporary prophets uh, were Nahum, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet, though Jeremiah's ministry continued beyond the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. The iniquity in, of the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem weighed heavily upon the heart of Zephaniah, and the ministry of Zephaniah and Jeremiah paralleled those of Isaiah and Micah a century earlier to the people uh, of Israel. Now, what this is all about is that there is a looming day. Sorry, there is a looming day known as the day of the Lord. 
we read it briefly there before and we're not going to try and take it apart too much. We want to get the big picture here. But notice what he says. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked and I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. There's going to be a separation, a, a judgment that determines who are really his and who are not. As one writer says, it begins with explosive words of judgment. God is going to wipe the planet clean because of people's idolatry and corruption, particularly God's own people living in Jerusalem. This will happen on the day of the Lord when God punishes the nations that surround Judah and pour out his wrath on his own rebellious people. Another commentary says the judgment will come upon all the world and will destroy all the idolaters and despisers of God in Judah and Jerusalem and fall heavily upon sinners of every rank. The terrible day of the Lord will burst uh, irresistibly upon all the inhabitants of the earth. And in four times in this passage in the Hebrew, it talks about sweeping away. And the picture is like the flood of the Old Testament, the worldwide flood, though the, uh, many scientists don't believe in it today. But the evidence of the sweeping away is in the fossil record. People, sea creatures, they all end up buried in that fossil record. Now the theme of the book, the book represents, uh, presents an unambiguous denunciation of sin and warning of imminent judgment on Judah, but also the nations. And in Zephaniah 1.7 it says this, Be silent before the Lord God. You know, the world is prone to say, when, when, when crisis and difficulties hit, where is God he can't be a loving God if there is suffering, right? Well, we're going to look at that in a minute. We need to understand the true nature of love. But be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. And it brings us, there's, there's an overview, but we don't have time to look at it brings us to look at the day of the Lord. It's a day of wrath, but it's also a day of rejoicing. As someone has written, the little prophecy of Zephaniah presents the dark side of God's love. God is glorified in judging as well as he is glorified in saving. As the last of the writing prophets before the captivity, he draws our, directs our attention to a future day of the Lord. You know, some believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. But that's a misunderstanding of true love. You know, we live in a culture that says it's only loving if you affirm whoever or whatever people are or do. Do you know what it's producing? You know, if you, if you love your child despite their, their, their misbehavior, their horrible treatment of others, 
you don't really love them. And what it produces in society and what we're seeing in our society today is a great anger in generations that are rising up that have been loved, raised in that kind of one-sided view of love. As Ray Steadman says, one of the shortest books is that by the prophet Zephaniah. Yet it is a book which is almost overwhelming in its darkness and gloom. The theme of the book is the day of the Lord. It's a view of the backside of God's love, in other words, his wrath. It's a book which sets forth the burning jealousy of God. The Bible frequently says that God is a jealous God. That doesn't mean jealousy as we usually think of it, being suspicious all the time and looking for expected violations of love. It simply means that God loves so thoroughly so completely that he cannot brook a rival to his love. God will destroy anything which hurts his loved ones. You know, if a child plays with matches, is it loving to ignore that child and say, isn't it cute? Why not? Because there are consequences. And if he keeps playing with matches, he gets fascinated and may even become a, py a pyromaniac. That, that not only uh, sets fire things around his yard, but begins to set fire things in, in a, at great peril to others. It's loving to discipline. There could be no love on God's part without the ultimate exercise of wrath. You say you can't accept a God of wrath? Then you can't really believe in a God of love because a God who can't get angry at what injures the person he loves is not capable of love. Zephaniah is the great prophet of God's jealousy. And you see, God purifies his people because of his intense love for them. It, the uh, writer to the book, of the book of Hebrews says this, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Not because he's unloving, but because he is loving. And, and so wrath, there are two sides of the coin. And this book looks at both sides. If you, say, if you only think it's a book of wrath and therefore I won't read it, it's too dark, it's too difficult, you miss the point of the book. But it does speak unapologetically of wrath, of God's anger at sin and rebellion. Like the prophet Joel, Zephaniah spoke of the day of the Lord. In fact, just preceding the universal judgment that will come upon the earth in the end time, worldwide conditions will be like those local conditions in Israel. You see, whenever you look at the prophets, you have to see that they see near and they see far. And there may be lots of other events in between those two events, but the prophecy that they're speaking of has both a near fulfillment and it did in 585 BC when Judah's taken into captivity. And there is a further fulfillment at the end of the days when all of these things come together. In Zephaniah 3.8 he says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation or my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. You cannot escape the fact that there is a judgment day coming. 
Zephaniah delivers a stern message of judgment against uh, Judah and nearby nations for their idolatrous practices. And he gives a series of prophetic warnings and judgment. Firstly, idolatry is condemned. Zephaniah denounces the worship of foreign gods and the pride of those who rely on their own strengths. He speaks of divine retribution. God promises to punish those who oppress the poor, shed innocent blood, practice deceit and engage in injustice. And he warns of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah vividly describes the day of the Lord's wrath, portraying the devastation and darkness that will come upon the world. And there are warnings of destruction that go with that. God's judgment brings severe consequences, including the destruction of cities, desolation and exile. But it's counterbalanced by the picture of God's, the other side of the coin of God's love. His prophecy about the day of the Lord is more than a day of God's wrath. It will also bring a day of God's rejoicing. In Zephaniah 3.16 and 17, we read, In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. Oops. Uh, is in your midst a victorious warrior, and he will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And some translations translate the Hebrew words here with singing or with loud singing as the ESV has it here. As J. Bernard McGee says, it might be difficult to believe, but Zephaniah has the same theme as the Gospel of John. John is called the Apostle of Love. Zephaniah is the prophet of love. God writes in his letters of light the wonderful gospel story for you and me against the black background of our sin. You know, people have tried to the gospel from God is love, smile, God loves you. But they've forgotten the, the, the awful truth that our sin separates us from a loving God. And that he is longing for us to come back in repentance. And that's what we're going to see here as we, as we go through it. And so we see the main themes of messages, the positive side, the love side is here in a call for repentance. Amidst the warnings, Zephaniah calls for repentance and a turning back to God to escape the impending judgment. We read before, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. In other words, it's coming. Stop. Think. Now, with the name which uh, generally is accepted to mean the Lord hides, Zephaniah pleads with each inhabitant of Judah to repent before the dreaded day of the Lord should come. He urges the people of Judah to seek the Lord so that they would be hidden from his anger on that day. Zephaniah 2, 1 to 3. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff. 
Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. You notice he calls them together, together to seek him, to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, to seek humility, that God will bless his people when they return to their covenant relationship with him as God intends for us to come to him. And there's another side to the themes here. It's the reward of righteousness. Those who seek righteousness and humility will find refuge and restoration in the midst of that judgment. In Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10, he says, For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them, that's all those who have turned to him, who have looked to him, may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshippers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. You know, that's what uh, Narell is involved in, the translating of God's word, that people distant village in Papua New Guinea will be, be able to be there standing together with the people from every tribe and tongue and nation because they have turned, they've heard the message, they've heard, yes, of the wrath of God, but also of the love of God, for the two do not exist separate. And so this brings us to the purpose. The people of Judah needed to repent so that they might be hidden in the days of the Lord's anger. With a name which meant the Lord hides, Zephaniah pleads with each inhabitant of Judah to repent before the dreaded day of the Lord should come, for it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord. In other words, you'll be protected, you'll be preserved. You'll sweep everyone else away, everything else away. But he keeps those who have turned to him. Zephaniah's message of judgment and encouragement contains three major doctrines. The sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all nations. The justice of God, the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated on the day of judgment. And the mercy of God, God blesses those who repent and trust in him. And that brings us to the promises in the last part of chapter 3, just this overview here. Zephaniah finishes with one of the most marvellous depictions of God's salvation in the prophets. And it shines brightly against the dark, backdrop of sin and God's judgment. The final blessings on Zion pronounced in chapter 3 verses 14 to 20 are largely as yet unfulfilled, leading us to conclude that these are messianic promises that await the second coming of Christ to be completed. The Lord has taken away our punishment only through Christ who came to die for the sins of his people as David talked about in the communion time. But Israel has yet not yet recognised her true saviour. This is yet to happen and we won't get into all of the verses there. But it brings us to the promises of restoration and hope. There's to be a remnant preserved, both of uh, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel and of the nations. This salvation will come to a remnant from Judah and the nations. God promises to leave a remnant of humble and righteous people who will escape the universal destruction of the day of the Lord and experience his restoration and blessing. 
They are described by Zephaniah as an afflicted and poor people. Of them it is said, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. And he will turn mourning into joy. You know, when we look at the suffering and affliction of this world, it causes a deep sadness. But there is a day coming when he will flip side it because he will turn it into joy. They will survive and be purified by God's devastating judgment. Zephaniah envisions a time when God will turn their mourning into joy, bringing back the exiles and transforming their sorrow into praise. And it will be a time of abundance and blessing. This passage represents an interesting glimpse of the millennial period and the blessings Israel will experience during that time. As one writer says, the salvation and restoration that God promised was never fully realized in the post-exilic period. It awaited another day, the day of the cross, when Jesus bore the wrath of God as a sacrifice of atonement so that people from all nations might call on the name of the Lord and be saved. This salvation will be complete on another day of the Lord, the return of Christ, when wickedness and idolatry are finally swept away from the world. That brings us to just pull it together is what do we do with this? Well, there's no such thing as a second-generation child of God. You aren't saved by your parents' faith. You aren't saved because you go to church. You aren't saved because uh, you, you kind of go along and do all the stuff that Christian people do, that your parents do. Every generation must accept God's covenant rather than relying on the faith of a previous generation. David talked about it before, to follow him. As Chuck Swindoll says, judgment and doom are certain unless there is repentance before God. Only then can there be hope and restoration. Jesus Christ spares us from God's wrath and he is the one who will someday rule the earth as king. Those living in Judah had turned the worship of God into a fiasco. Not only had they built their own places of worship to revere other gods, which you hear referred to as high places in the Old Testament, but they had begun to desecrate the temple, which at that time was the dwelling place of God. As modern-day believers in Christ, we too make a mockery of worship when we live in open sin. Do you come before the Lord with a false face, week in and week out, looking the part without acting it, without turning in repentance and allowing him to, to lead your steps? Allow Zephaniah to remind you how seriously God takes your life and your relationship with him. And if you failed, remember the message of Zephaniah 3, God is always a God of restoration and hope. I added these verses there just as I was listening and thinking during the service. Jesus said in John 12, 46 to 50, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. 
The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Where are you this morning? And even if you are a believer, do you have a sense of urgency of the coming day of God's wrath, of God's judgment upon the nations and the opportunity and the time to redeem now to be proclaiming the good news. Now, we can't save people. They must deal with the gospel message. But they often, if they only hear it as the God of love, God so loves. But how does he love? He loved by sending his son who took the wrath of God for us. And we are to receive him. And we are to acknowledge him as saviour and lord of our lives, that turns our lives around. That's what we send people out. That's what we are called to do, and as David talked about, when we uh, are going out, wherever we are going, wherever we are placed, is there's a sense of the urgency of the hour that people need to hear, for there is coming a day of judgment. It's like they're floating... uh, peacefully down a river, but what they don't know is just further downstream is a massive waterfall. Yes, they think it goes on like this for the rest of their days, but all of a sudden, over they go. And the need is for someone to give them the rope that saves them now. That's the urgency of the task. That's what Narell is about. Yes, it involves patient teaching. It involves learning languages. It involves getting to understand people. It involves going to people. It involves daring to speak up to neighbours and to family and friends who are lost and to cry out for their lostness, for their ju- the judgment day is coming. But the same God who judges is a God of love who redeems. And it's a message that we need to have upon our lips wherever we are, whatever we're doing, and proclaiming it to a people who need to hear. The world does not want to hear it. They may reject it. In the past, over the centuries, people have gone to the mission fields giving their lives out of love because they so cared for the lost to whom they have been sent. Their life was not precious, for they know the one with whom they have eternal life. It's a serious task. And there is a day looming that those who reject will regret, but it will be too late. We have the opportunity to proclaim the good news now. We send Narell out, knowing that's the task she's engaging in. And she does all of that study, trying to learn a language so that they can hear in their own mother tongue the words of the scripture. 
Are you ready for that day? And are you seeking the lost that they might be saved before that day? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's in our nature that boastful pride of life that says I can be master of my own destiny, that we only want to hear good news. But the good news is only truly heard against the blackness of sin and judgment. When we realise our need of a saviour, when we realise that unless we turn around and turn back to God, we indeed will face the judgment, the righteous and holy and just judgment of God of which we will have nothing to say in defence. But Father, we thank you that you have provided the way, that you have given the son, your Son, that we might have eternal life. And Father, we press pray that you would fill us with such a desire to proclaim to others that we could not remain silent before your coming. For we shall surely be silent.